This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik, a progress company. Hello, and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and today is a special episode recorded in front of a live audience at CodeStock 2015. Today's show will be a mobile panel discussion featuring David Giard from Microsoft and Telerik's Michael Crump, myself, and Sam Basu as your moderator. This is the mobile strategy panel, and we are really looking to have an honest uh, conversation about what's hot, uh, what's new, what are some pros and cons, all right? Uh, how many of you do mobile development? Okay, so most of you. So this should be relevant, and again, we'll, we'll try to be honest here. Who am I? Uh, I'm gonna try to maybe run the show, but it's really these guys in the front who will do all the speaking. Uh, so my name is Sam Basu. Uh, that's, our, that's my Twitter handle. Uh, I work as a developer advocate for Telerik, um, and hopefully you guys use some of our products. Uh, we are here to talk about generic uh, mobile stuff though. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. They have their expertise in multiple things, but we're gonna make them stand for a couple of things and then try to uh, defend their stance. So nothing personal. You guys can ask any questions you want. Uh, they will not be offended. So the reason why we're having this conversation is uh, mobile is hot. I mean, it's just not an option anymore. It's a lifestyle. Uh, applications need to be on mobile platforms. So you want to build a mobile app. Your boss comes and says, build me a mobile app. And you scratch your head and you realize that you might have to have a strategy. You need to learn how to go about doing that. And then you're faced with that, which is an assortment of a whole lot of technologies and a whole lot of confusion, right? And everything comes to a screeching stop and you're like, okay, how do I go about doing this? Why are there so many options? How do I know I'm doing the right things? Are there pros and cons? Um, so essentially you have major mobile platforms, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and then you have fundamentally many different ways of building mobile applications. One is native, when you go true native on the device uh, and on the platform that you want to be. And then there are other approaches of using, reusing your web skills, of other ways of going native without actually writing on the platform that it's meant to be. And then there are other ways to go hybrid where you're reusing your web skills and still packaging up your apps. So this is what we want to address. So much of choice, are you doing the right things? And just kind of getting the lay of the land and knowing the pros and cons. There really isn't a single silver bullet. Everything has its pros and cons. So we just want to discuss where we're at. Uh, while we're doing this, feel free to, oh, the rumbling is so nice. Uh, Ed's gonna love his on, love this on his podcast. So um, talk to us. This is not a one-way street. Um, as we are talking through uh, a few things, feel free to tweet any questions you have. We, we are gonna watch this, uh, uh, this Twitter, I guess, hashtag. So let's uh, open this up. We're gonna go Twitter and Let's watch this hashtag CodeStock mobile panel. Any questions you guys have, please uh, put it up here. So we're gonna see it and then uh, we can have one of these guys uh, take turns as we answer those questions. All right, so with that, uh, kind of let's let's get started. Here's what uh, we're gonna maybe make these three guys stand for. So Ed is our resident web expert. So he's all things web. He's gonna talk about mobile web some uh, things about where we are at, what, what are some things you can do, and then also the hybrid story where you can package your mobile apps, your, uh, or I guess your web assets into an actual app that you deploy to the stores, right? David is all about Windows. Uh, David works for Microsoft and he loves Windows 10 and everything that's uh, going on in that world. So he's gonna talk, some of, some of that is about uh, all of the new native stuff in Windows. And Michael is the odd one out here. He's kind of like me. He's into a lot of different things. So he'll talk about a little bit of native stuff and then some of the semi-native things of going to all of these platforms without actually writing the platform-specific code. So things like Xamarin, things like native script. Okay. So how about we begin with uh, Ed here? So Ed, um, tell us about mobile web. Uh, tell us where we are at. Um, what are some new and hot things that you know? So I've spent uh, about the last four and a half years uh, developing mobile websites and mobile web applications, uh, mainly using Foundation uh, by Zurb and Bootstrap. And I've found those two uh, mobile responsive frameworks to be pretty much capable of tackling 
any kind of uh, mobile web scenario. So th those frameworks are excellent starting points for uh, getting your app uh, up and running and getting it to where it displays on any device size. Uh, so I wouldn't suggest trying to start absolutely from scratch uh, if you're going to be developing a uh, mobile web application for the very first time. Uh, definitely go grab one of those uh, frameworks and uh, maybe even find some templates uh, depending on your team size and uh, get started using that stuff. Uh, why reinvent the wheel, uh, as they say. All right, I got, we got more questions. We're going to grill you, each, each three of you. All right, so in this age of like going all out native and, all, and so on, are you saying mobile web is still a legit strategy for some companies? So mobile web is not only a legit strategy, but I feel like it is uh, a base that uh, a mobile strategy should be built upon. So uh, for example, um, uh, Trello is an excellent application to use as an example because Trello has a uh, web application that uh, you can run on your desktop, you can run on any mobile device, and then they've used that as a base, like a pyramid to build on top of, and then they also have native applications that you can download uh, that run the same application but give you maybe a little more uh, finite experience. They let you access the camera on your phone and things like that and give push notifications. So it's not a one uh, tool uh, to do the complete job, but multiple tools to uh, solve a complex problem. So we get this quite a bit where our bosses will come and say, you have an ASP.NET application that works just fine on desktop, make it work on my iPhone or my Android device. How do you go about that? Okay, so what you're talking about is a responsive retrofit. Uh, so you want to take something that you already have and completely retrofit it uh, to work on mobile. Um, now, I, I would argue that this is probably a bad strategy. It's like taking a baked, completely baked and ready-to-eat apple pie and giving it to someone and say, okay, now make it an apple turnover. <laughs> You've already completed the project. You've already given it a specific user experience, and now you'd like to change it to something completely different. But there are tools that might help. There are some tools that might help. Um, and each tool is going to be specific to your, your scenario, how the application was built, what's its history, uh, what existing technology are you using. Um, if you're still using things like uh, table layouts, you're going to have a bad time. Uh, if you're using something more modern like maybe a 960GS, which is a, a grid system uh, that's quite a few years old, but it still has the same um, mechanics is something like Bootstrap does, uh, you're going to have a much easier time getting that done. Uh, another thing is um, if you're using ASP.NET web forms, uh, there's new rendering modes like, for example, the Telerik control suites. Uh, you can just toggle a new rendering mode on that's uh, mobile friendly. So you can do that on MVC as well. Nowadays. Yeah, there's, there's some avenues of approach, but again, your user experience was originally designed for a desktop, so even though it works, it may not work well. So you're saying responsive web design isn't just about scaling content up and down, it's really about how you present the content. Correct. And for the device form factor you're presenting on. Yeah, because if you try to retrofit, you're, you're leaving the D out of responsive web design. Right. You're, you're taking the design component away, you're just trying to make it mobile, and that doesn't always work. Yep. Okay, so I have a question on all of these tools that we have. So there is Bootstrap, there is Zerb Foundation, there are lots of other tools that allow you to do responsive web design. How, how do these things scale with the dizzying array of device form factors that we have today? Like, how do you test? Okay, so there's kind of two questions there. Uh, first one is, uh, how do things like Bootstrap and Foundation uh, scale to many different devices. Question number two is how do you test those devices? So responsive web design when done correctly uh, you are essentially designing your layouts for your application uh, to where when you scale that application up or down those views conform to those different view sizes. So you don't pick an arbitrary number of pixels and say 
well, an iPhone, whatever is this many pixels, you pick, you create your layout and then you say, well, once it gets to this size, it doesn't work right anymore. Whatever that size may be is going to be different from one application to another. Then you create a breakpoint uh, at that resolution and then redesign that layout. So you're so, driving the layouts more based on your breakpoints rather than the device form factors. Correct. So screen size is not so much the deciding fact factor on where the breakpoint is. It's what your application layout looks like at certain sizes. So if you start shrinking down your browser and it hits a certain size and it just doesn't function anymore, uh, user experience-wise, uh, UI-wise, you want to create a breakpoint and start repairing that. And uh, so that the next size uh, range down performs correctly. Now, testing, um, you can do a variety of tests on your laptop or your desktop in the browser, uh, but you're gonna find that the best thing to do is actually get a hold of some devices and test on real hardware. Uh, testing in the browser works to an extent, but every browser and every device has its own quirks. So you're gonna find that um, even though it works on your, your desktop simulation or emulation, uh, you, you may find a different user experience when you actually hold the device. Okay, perfect. Why don't we let you have a little rest and maybe switch to Michael here. So Michael is all about native and kind of trying to reuse as much of the code as we can. So before we get to any of the reuse part, what's new and happening with iOS and Android? What are some disruptive trends? Yeah, so if you followed any of the WWDC announcements, um, some of the big things that kind of came out of at least Apple's world was Swift uh, 2.0 was released. Uh, there's in beta that's available for that. Um, that's one of the bigger things that Apple is obviously going to be pushing on. And then Watch OS 2. So uh, I'm lucky enough to have uh, Apple Watch. I don't know if somebody say I'm not that lucky, but uh, by, I've already installed uh, Watch OS 2 and I've noticed a lot of different improvements. And one of the bigger things that's coming with the new version of Xcode is that no longer does the actual code for the watch it is going to be contained on your uh, phone's application, but it will on, on your actual phone, but it will all the code will be running completely on your watch. It's huge. It's great and like I said I've been playing with it the beta 3 just came out so good stuff there on the other end and another kind of high level Android released Android M which no everybody's kind of trying to figure out what the M stands for milkshake has kind of been <laughs> has been something uh, what'd you say yeah it's gotta be food so the Android M is the latest version uh, that came out right now that's also in preview state uh, the one thing that's nice about that is that anybody that has an Android device, uh, you have to have a fairly current model, can go ahead and download the factory images um, for that and, and start installing it. Whereas with Apple, uh, the public preview for that software is, is not out there yet. And on the Windows front, we obviously have uh, Windows 10 that's coming along, and I guess David will get... Yeah, we'll let David do some of that. So as an indie developer, I know you do this superbly well, but for for me to write an iOS app, I need to know either Objective-C or Swift and be in um, Xcode. Uh, Xcode, right? And for Android, I need to know Java and be in Eclipse or Android Studio. And for Windows, there's the whole C-sharp or um, XAML story. How does an indie developer even try to stay on top of all three of these like really different platforms? Yeah. So. The answer to that question is, is they don't. <laughs> I, I struggle with it myself, you know, quite a bit because I, I spend a lot of time with all three of these and I have native apps in all three stores. And then I also have an Apple Watch app and I have a Google Wear app. And so one of the things that I would say, if you're wanting to, you know, to go down that, look at the market that you're really trying to reach first. Um, I really wouldn't suggest jumping into all three, like all at first. I know there was only a couple hands that came up uh, asked when Sam asked originally if people were developing mobile apps. But um, if if you're looking at if you're looking at applications, you know, obviously in the U.S., um, iOS is dominant, dominating the market. 
whereas in you know outside of the US Android is, is taking over a gigantic share of the market I found that it's kind of a lower barrier to entry um, especially if you're a dotnet developer how many dotnet developers do we have kind of in the room so this is a pretty good bit so well anyway going from your c-sharp background to java is a lot easier than going to objective c <laughs> and so i went from objective c and uh, i went from c-sharp to objective c when i wrote my first app and it's so bad that uh i haven't unpublished it yet but it's still it's it's out there but uh but, but swift was actually fairly easy for me to get into from a c-sharp background but my mind was already kind of messed up from learning objective c <laughs> so uh just kind of keep keep that in mind but yeah so the answer to the question sam is that really you know pick one and narrow it down i would say you know start with maybe one uh you know you find a lot of success when you build that little simple one to two screen app um it, i built i built a really silly app that was actually inspired by another app that I found on uh, a Windows Phone, and it was a, basically an app that was it was called like Love Messages. Now hold on before you start laughing at me. It was called SMS Love Messages, and the thing that was cool about it was that it was getting tons of hits in the Windows Phone store, yet in the iOS store nobody was was getting it. And all it, all you would do is you would just pick a message, and then you would just like put in like your you know. Spouses or boyfriend girlfriend's name, and then it would send them like this, you know, lovely, nice little message. I put it in the iPhone store, and I had a little over a thousand downloads within a couple of days. And I was surprised because it was my first app. It was very, very crappy, and it only used um, it was only one single screen. So I found success with something as, as simple as that. So pick one and then scale. So we actually have a Twitter question on uh, UX for wearables. So short of you talking on your wrist which is super awkward um, is this whole wearables thing uh, disrupting the native space like how do you go from a phone to a um, to a watch yeah so this question obviously is something that you know when i started de developing for a wearable uh, my first app was uh, for my apple for apple watch was an emoji dictionary and that one for example um, I had to look at the screen space that I had and then obviously now you have a whole bunch of different iPhones so you have to decide well okay Apple has made some of that decision already for you by saying that we are only going to limit you to like maybe 10 controls whereas if you use the actual phone we're going to give you all of the controls so you have to start thinking in the mindset of that very smaller screen and I've noticed that most people that have already released um, some sort of wearable uh, applications have already started like, you know, stripping things away from their applications. You don't kind of go into it with the same mindset of as I want to show absolutely everything on the screen, only the most important details. So, for example, the Delta app that's out right now, the only thing that it actually shows is just your you can just get your boarding pass when, and you can slide to it and it'll show your uh, and then you can, you know, check in check out I mean check in or whatever but you have to keep that in mind that now you've got these smaller screens there's only two right now for um, Apple you know the 32 and 44 and then for the Google Wear you have two different types of screens you're gonna be working with uh, the rectangular shape and then the oval shape and I worked with the Moto 360 with my first app um, natively for that and I found out very quickly that it did not my app didn't look so appropriate on the square square screen compared to the circular screen of the uh, Moto 360. So yeah, there is there is uh, there is directions from Apple and by Google on how to design your UX for for this. And I believe you're going to start seeing this a lot more in conferences. So essentially, what you're saying is, content-wise, choose absolutely what you have to have—the smallest amount of information for your wearables. Absolutely, the absolutely smallest amount of information. And all of the apps that I've looked at, I primarily focus on the first-party apps that are built by Apple and that are built by Google. And I look at what, how they've implemented this their stuff, and they've narrowed it down to just the exact thing that they—the details of just that particular app. All right. All right, why don't we switch to David here. So um, 
we have heard what's new with Apple and, and Google. So, David, tell us what's happening with Windows 10. And before he answers that, uh, my two cents are things are looking really good. But as we have seen with Windows history, like alternate versions of Windows do really well. Uh, so, like, no pressure on Windows 10, right? Also, uh, so what, are we on the, the good alternate now, or are we on the bad alternate? Hopefully now? on the good alternate the next time around. <laughs> good beer pattern. Yeah. Uh, uh, we skipped an odd number, which I think might have been a mistake. Yeah. So now it well. um, but Windows 10, it's, it's uh, coming out, uh, I think, was it 20-something? July 29th. July 29th, so it's right around the corner. Um, I don't know when this podcast is going off, but today is July the uh, 9th, I think. 10th. 10th. And... Um, uh, the I guess the biggest thing as far as developers are concerned is this unification of Windows all the way from the desktop to the laptop to the tablet down to uh, the mobile device. To, to and phone. even down to like the headless IoT, it right, all runs right. Windows. It's all the same Windows. And what this means for developers is uh, um, that you can write the same code base and share it across all multiple devices. And in fact, the same binaries can run on all multiple devices. So in the past, we've had uh, a lot of code that worked on desktop and on mobile devices, but you still had to conditionally compile it. You had to have these pound if statements inside of there. Uh, that all goes away. Now you can have one um, one executable that will run on all these. Now you still have different capabilities of each device, and you may want to have some libraries that are being called based on the capabilities of a mobile device having an accelerometer, for example. And But uh, and you may have some uh, UI things that you may want to change, differentiate. Uh, but those will be one-offs. Those will be uh, simpler to manage as a developer. Okay. Um, well, we promise we won't be kind to these guys. So let me ask you this. I'm used to it. Yeah. So <laughs> anytime, like okay. <laughs> anytime we developers hear that write once and run everywhere, <laughs> we really think it means write once and suck everywhere. <laughs> so I know the story is much better. How how does a developer handle the vast array of UI differences between a phone and a desktop and a Surface, all the way up to like 80 inch Surface Hub? Yeah, so you have options. So I guess the answer, of course, is it depends, which yep. is always the answer. Um, you could do uh, reactive designs and uh, have things just scale automatically. Um, there are some events that will fire as you get to certain points. There are uh, certain resolutions and certain sizes. You could have multiple layouts for different devices and have those triggered by basically the size of the screen. So you've got a lot of options. It really depends upon the, the type of device you're doing, the type of application you're doing. Sometimes the same UI does make sense. You just want to shrink it down or maybe right. just change the columns around a little bit. Sometimes it, you need a radically different UI, maybe a grid on a large device and just a single column of options on a small device. Right. And I think if you're going to reuse your UI, um, one of the things that Ed was saying with the, like the natural flowing grid layouts you actually have some Windows 10 controls which shrink and fit as far as those breakpoints Yeah, there's a whole go. bunch of new controls that have been, or some of them are new, some of them have just been enhanced, and they will, they're will they more reactive, they're more responsive, I should say, and they will shrink to the size of what you're doing. We're also seeing a, a lot of the more parity in the controls. So there were a lot of controls that were only available on Windows Phone or only available on uh, Windows Desktop, and they've, they've been... Uh, 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 now they're available on both, and now they're more consistently used on both. Okay. So this is the curveball. Okay. You, you get a curveball after curveball. Okay. All right. <laughs> so um, Michael and me have spent at least a couple of years on Windows Phone. We, we all love it. We know it's a gorgeous OS, has a beautiful functional paradigm. But um, how long uh, do we keep our belief system going? Uh, because we know we see the market shares. Um, what what are some things to look forward to in Windows 10 Mobile, uh, especially in the mobile space, to maybe gain some more market share back from Apple and Google? Well, I think the acquisition of Nokia is, uh, is a big one right there. I mean, we've got uh, hardware devices in-house that we're working with. Um, and then uh, I just, the mobile, <laughs> I can't tell you this, the mobile space is in a lot of flux constantly. This is smartphones. People renew, buy new smartphones every two years. And uh, we just had a conversation a minute ago that uh, is Apple dominant? Well, three or four years ago, Apple owned the marketplace in, mobile, in smartphones. That just isn't true. That turned around in a really short time. Um, so my feeling is there's still three strong players in this marketplace that uh, that's going to continue for a long time. And this is, I mean, this is troubling for developers because, as Michael pointed out, it's hard to master all three platforms. Right. But I think that's, I mean, that's where the market's going. Okay. So one last question before before we maybe switch tracks. So, 
we knew about the promise of WinJS, where you could reuse some of your web skills to make Windows apps. Where are we now and where are we going with WinJS? Oh, I think it's still a viable option. WinJS was always uh, there as an alternative for people that were more comfortable with JavaScript and HTML5. I don't think it was ever meant... I don't think you were the target audience for that because you've been you came out of the WPF world, right? I mean, you were you were a strong mobile developer. You knew XAML, um, and for those people, there was you should continue to use that skill set. That was just to ease the transition, I think, from uh, from uh, web development into desktop or mobile development. And I think that's still true. I, I don't think anything has changed in that. Okay, all right. So why don't we switch gears again? Uh, have some questions for Ed, maybe. So. Ed, in this world of iOS and Android apps making money, how on earth do you monetize mobile web? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you can't just deploy a web, mobile web application to one of the three stores. Right. Um, so you have to look for alternate sources of uh, revenue, like subscription-based models. Uh, you could have a subscription that includes access to your application. Um, you could also, uh, as I said before, have uh, not just one set of tools or one set of apps that fits the entire ecosystem, but uh, maybe your, uh, your web application is free to access, but your native application you need to purchase. Or, like I said, with a subscription, uh, you have the subscription, maybe uh, you need the subscription to use the native application right. on your device. So there's, there's a lot of different avenues that you can take. Uh, you just have to think outside of the App Store box. Okay. All right. So the other thing maybe we are, um, we are kind of interested in as web developers is we hear this whole concept of reusing your, H your HTML, CSS, and JavaScript skills to make apps which are kind of like mobile web, but they are packaged up as hybrid apps. So I'm talking about technologies like uh, what PhoneGap started with and Cordova, which is the open source framework now. So um, do, do you see a, see a promise with hybrid apps? Yeah, so you're, you're able to reuse skills with things like uh, PhoneGap, Cordova, or pretty much the same thing now, um, and uh, the Telerik platform even. Um, where you can still use your HTML, CSS, JavaScript skills, uh, and then wrap the web application in a wrapper, um, and then deploy that to the App Store. Uh, so that's, that's so that gives you immediate monetization, at least. It gives you monetization. It also gives you some hardware access. So things like camera, GPS, um, uh, gyroscope, things like that can also be accessed through JavaScript, uh, through PhoneGap. Actually, I will supplement that to say you can actually have access to almost the entire API set through Cordova plugins. There is really not much you cannot do from a hybrid app. Yeah, I would to what say you can do for a native app. I'd say like maybe ninety-eight percent yeah, of the things yeah, are covered. That. It's going to be those one-off things right. that are specific to one, you know, certain device, uh, like the thumbprint um, sure. identification on an, on an iPhone. Yeah. It, those things will actually come though. It just it's a matter of uh, somebody writing uh, the middle. Uh, where between um, the hybrid application or the native uh, device and the hybrid application. So in essence, what you're doing with the hybrid apps is you're creating bridges between native APIs and making those proxies available as JavaScript calls, correct? Correct. Okay. Now, even though when you're doing that, um, like to me as the user of your app, I don't see a difference. I mean, I'm using your app from the App Store. I download it just like any other app. But behind the scenes, it really is a web canvas. You're running inside a huge web view, correct? Correct. A well-written hybrid application, the end user should have no clue that it's any different from a native application. So like especially enterprise or line of business apps, I mean, hybrid is a very legit strategy. Yeah, especially if your team at work is a mobile, or sorry, a uh, web, web development web team. Yep. Uh, you don't have to go out and acquire new uh, folks to come on board and... Um, with different skills. So the one caveat to that, and this is what we keep hearing, because if you go to a Walmart, you can still buy an Android device that is four years old, sold as a new device, right? So um, your one caveat is on newer phones, your browsers have come a long, long way. 
But if you go too far back, your app isn't going to be as fluid performance-wise. Yeah, so if you take a really old or really cheap, in fact, Android device, uh, you're going to see poor performance um, in a hybrid application, but you could also make the same argument for a native application. Uh, a native application that has a lot going on, um, like something that uses a lot of the device uh, CPU, it's going to lag on anything. So I'm not Michael. I'm not smart. I cannot, for the love of me, create native apps on three platforms. I really want to go cross-platform. And I'm a, I'm a good C-sharp developer. I know my XAML. So is Xamarin the solution for C-sharp developers to go cross-platform? Xamarin is a solution. I mean, if C-sharp is your, in your wheelhouse, I think it's a great solution. Uh, doesn't your company have tools that'll do this? Yep, we'll, we'll ask Michael about that too. <laughs> so we, we love Xamarin. Um, we also love the promise of Xamarin Forms which was something they released uh, uh, maybe a year or two back. And with Xamarin, our approach was to reuse as much of the business logic as possible, but you still had to build three different UIs for three platforms. Yeah. With Xamarin Forms, I think the goal was to reuse your UI, have a sort of XAML-like language, which can be cross-compiled and rendered as native apps. But I think the reality that Michael and I are both seeing is some of that is smoke and mirrors. So, have you had any experience with Xamarin Forms? I have not worked with Xamarin Forms. Okay, sorry, I'm the wrong. No, maybe maybe Michael Michael can shed some <laughs> on that. Okay, so um, so you definitely see Xamarin as um, as a legit strategy for lots of Microsoft developers to take their apps to iOS I, and Android. I see. I mean, there's a lot of legit strategies. That's certainly one of them, and it does have the advantage that if you're already a C sharp developer, which I saw half the room went up, then that's a, a great way to uh, get in the cross platform world. If you're already a web developer, maybe PhoneGap is a or Cordova or something is a better way. Right, okay. So we had a Twitter question and maybe I'm gonna rephrase this with something else. So uh, will Microsoft Windows 10 support Android apps in any way? And before you answer that, let me load that with another question. At Build, we saw demos, which are not, uh, it's not production out yet, but we saw demos where if you had iOS and Android apps in Objective-C or Java, you could bring them in inside of Visual Studio, cross-compile them, and make it available in Windows. So tell us about these two stories. Well, I, I, I've seen those demos as well, and I haven't seen any other information after build. So I have as much information as you do on that, but what the demo showed is um, exactly what you described, which is uh, being able to bring in and compile existing Android apps, uh, take that code and compile it for the Windows platform, which would make which would ease cross-platform development. Yeah. But um, I mean, Windows that's 10 not out here of, yet, and it won't be here July 29th. Okay. Uh, and it, oh, so it's uh, coming I, after Windows. I think 10 my understanding is, since I haven't heard anything, I, I understand. I, I, uh, I'll caveat that with uh, just uh, okay. that's what so, I have not heard. So we will absolutely quote you on that. No, I'm, just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, um, uh, but my understanding is that, is that that's coming later. Okay. Um, and uh, but Windows and I think it's 10, a great promise. I think it's a great promise. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of people that. Uh, they recognize they'd like to get on the Windows platform, but they don't want to spend a lot of money doing it because of the smaller market right. share. And this and, is to ease that. Yeah, and may maybe we'll see how uh, how true that promise is because if you can truly bring over your Objective-C code and just cross-compile in Visual Studio. Why not? If it's that why easy. not? Uh, but I mean, we, we fear how much of that is going to be the reality, but we'll see once the tools yeah. are out. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, we saw that demo and it looked good in the demo. Yeah, but. yeah. But I mean, to answer Larry's question, I mean, Windows 10 is not going to run Android apps out of the box just like that. No, but there are there are tools. Uh, Xamarin is certainly one store you can install Xamarin. You can build Android apps with that. There is uh, there's Android emulator in Visual Studio. There is which is interesting because I think Microsoft now makes the best Android I've emulator. Heard that before. <laughs> uh, it doesn't take a half an hour to load. Yeah, uh, Android <laughs> emulators let you go and have a date and something. You can come back and lo load by that time. Yeah. So, so Visual Studio can become a viable platform for building Android applications. Okay, sweet. How about we switch to Mike? He was the smart one you said, right? Yeah. <laughs> All lies. <laughs> lies, I tell you. So, same question. Is Xamarin Forms still some of the smoke and mirrors? Or what are your specific pain points that you noticed? So, I don't know if, how many people in here is actually a XAML developer, but um, has anybody... Worked with XAML, say two or three lines. So if you've worked with XAML, you've kind of gotten used to, you know, stack panels. You've gotten used to all the different types of uh, layouts to buttons and things like that. 
what I've noticed coming from a completely XAML background, when I went into Xamarin Forms, I was expecting everything to kind of work just like it was working with, uh, you know, in XAML when I was creating maybe a Windows Phone application. Well, there's a lot of things that they're just slightly different. I mean, there's still like a grid, you know, that you're used to and things like that. But some some things like content, they, some of the properties that I have used and gotten used to in a XAML, like oh, maybe on like different types of button controls or whatever, they may not match up one to one. So just keep that in mind if you are doing a Xamarin.Forms uh, application is that the XAML is in exactly the same XAML that we know that Microsoft, you know, we know and love from Microsoft. Okay. So if I'm a XAML developer and if I know C-sharp, uh, sounds like Xamarin is a legit strategy for me to go across platform. Absolutely. But what if I'm a pure web guy? I just know JavaScript, everything else is crap. How can I use JavaScript <laughs> to go native on every platform? So, uh, so Honestly, if you are that Java developer and you love, you know, your HTML, your CSS and JavaScript, um, there is another solution, which is just native script. Uh, native script can be found just at just nativescript.org. And again, this is just an honest developer kind of opinion. It is a product that Telerik makes. It is a t also a, t a product that Telerik has open sourced. So, so it's, it's completely free. Absolutely okay. free. So just so you know, it's not a really a pitch for to make you buy something. You can go and check it out, nativescript.org, and you can download it. One of the things about it is that you can contribute to the project as well. But with NativeScript, just to kind of give you a brief overview of kind of what it is, is that your UI, you're probably wondering, well, how do you declare the, the UI? The UI is XML, which XML is what we're used to if we've done any sort of native Android development. And it's very XAML-ish as well. The, uh, the UI is very, very much like the Microsoft XAML that we're used to. Um, as far as your business logic goes, that's all in JavaScript and you have access to the native APIs, just like you have access to the native APIs in Xamarin. So Xamarin you know, just recently announced support for iOS 9, which iOS 9 tripped, tripped some of these companies up a bit because they changed, uh, they changed a couple of things, but um, uh, it's truly, you know, it's, you can still use those APIs. So like if you're wanting to use the speech recognizer class, you can still use those. You just look at how it's mapped in Android and how it's mapped in iOS, and then you can, you know, get the JavaScript equivalent of it. And then uh, the last part of it, you're probably asking or thinking already is uh, styling. So styling, obviously CSS, we're web developers. So styling, we're gonna to go to something that, that we that we know and we love. Okay, so we'll, we'll keep chatting. So uh, Michael, that sounds a lot like magical stuff. It does. So you're saying I can write pure JavaScript, like ECMAScript type JavaScript, and use CSS to style my native mobile apps. Yes. How is this working under the scenes? Like what's happening? <laughs> It's, it's fairly complicated. So right now you can use uh, ECMAScript 5. Uh, ECMAScript 6 support's coming um, later on. But we have, there's a, basically an engine that's kind of underlying in the hood and you can use uh, NPM, node package modules, and you can use CLI or command line interface and you can spin up a new project. And I'm wondering maybe if it would actually be helpful just to go to the native script, um, uh, native script site. If, on the nativescript, nativescript.org site, you can kind of see how you could actually get started with a project here. So Sam's typing this in. And so at the main page, we show a couple of different samples. So it, as it says here, nativescript magic, <laughs> just like Sam just like Sam was talking about, behind the scenes, our engineers have, have created libraries that will translate that code from your JavaScript code into the actual native code. So this is not using a web view. This is native. This is going to create a native platform, just like Xamarin, a native app, just like Xamarin does. So essentially, like uh, like we see in the screen here, um, essentially you get to write a little bit of XML, which is very generic stuff, and then that gets cross compiled into the corresponding native UI. Like if I say listbox this. It's going to be the actual list box on iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. Absolutely, the actual native list boxes. Absolutely, and in this in this example here, you can see 
grid layout um, most people if xaml experience you know you already already have like the grid kind of in your mind uh, and this is using just one of the bars and then it's just adding in a couple of different uh a couple of different buttons i believe on that that sample yeah and then there's a list view at the bottom and the, that list view is the native list view on all three of those platforms um <clears throat> Let's see if I go back here, um, maybe to the Xamarin world of things. Uh, what What's going on with all of these uh, test cloud type offerings? So we talked a little bit about testing with, uh, with Ed and he mentioned how the emulators and the browser simulators only go as far. It seems like like Telerik and Xamarin, we all have these test cloud offerings. What's, what's the deal? So I really haven't worked with test cloud. Um, test cloud obviously is Xamarin's uh, testing solution for mobile applications. But basically, uh, I know kind of a, a tiny bit about it, but it's, uh, you have all of these devices, you know, like he's mentioned about all the different Android devices, and you're gonna be able to uh, test your application. And I think it returns back a whole bunch of different screenshots. I don't know if anybody's got any more like in-depth info on test cloud, but it's something that I, I haven't worked with just because I don't have a subscription to that piece of it. I think um, they actually host a lot of the mobile OSs in their cloud, or maybe they actually have devices, and then they return screenshots of yeah. how your app is looking on actual devices across platforms. Yeah, they, they have a test wall, and, and yeah, I've, you've seen it probably in some of their pictures and stuff like that. So And, and we have one, too. Yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah, we absolutely. Does test cloud we, as well. We have our test wall where you can use like App Builder, and you can see what your app looks like on, on the, all of these devices. Okay. So as a .NET developer, this is an interesting time because .NET Core is now open sourced. So with time, um, is the relevance of Mono and all of these cross-platform ports going to maybe reduce? And I mean, could we envision like a world where we can write straight up .NET code and then that becomes uh, runnable in iOS and Android? Well, so... You have to have somebody that's going to build it. <laughs> we have a solution right now that's working pretty well with uh, the Xamarin Xamarin world, and they're using Mono as a runtime yeah. to cross compile. They're using Mono. That's the reason you can install Xamarin. You can write your C sharp code on your Mac, and you know everything works fine. Um, I think that's going to be one that we'll we'll just have to see if anybody else is ready to actually go out and challenge that space. I see open source projects obviously happening. I mean, you know, it's like. Uh, web framework of the week um, you know I see a lot of people you know wanting maybe to do some of this sort of stuff but it's a huge time investment even native script whenever you're wanting to start hitting three devices I mean we have a whole team working on native script just like Xamarin has their team um, I don't really believe that you know there's going to be a lot out there sure somebody will attempt it but um, that's just something that's just my opinion sure all right, why don't we switch to maybe Ed uh, one more time and then a couple of questions for Ed and then with Dave and we'll try to wrap up around 3.40 maybe. So um, Ed, we talked about responsive web design and all of the mobile web things. Um, to me, it sounds like whenever we do responsive web, we are um, really trying to shuffle around the content on the client side. But to me, as a, as a mobile user, it, I don't feel nice that you're shoving so much of content across the bandwidth and putting it all on my phone and then hiding stuff. So is responsive web design purely a client-side play? Okay, first, uh, there, there's actually two different kind of questions in there. Uh, one is, um, should we be sending things across the wire and hiding them? Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound good. Uh, and another is, should we be doing everything on the client side? Right. Uh, first, to address the first problem, um, if if you're sending things across the wire and hiding them, uh, why are we hiding them in the first place? Are, are those things that we don't want the user to access? Are they not needed by the user? If they're not needed by the user, why are we sending them uh, across? Um, another thing is, how do we know the user doesn't need those things? Right. Uh, are we hiding functionality from the user? Uh, so that goes back to the design portion of responsive web design. Um, you want to design something that the user can access and give them full access to 
uh, all of the functionality that they require access to. Um, so second of all, uh, doing everything on the client side, um, there, there are different methods of detecting um, what type of users are, are pulling up your application. You mean, on, you mean on the client side? Yeah, on the client side, you can, you can do detection and then send that detection information back to the server. Oh, so you're uh, actually making an actual round trip back to the server. Correct. And trying to customize exactly what you want to send across the wire for that device. Yeah, and this is the next tier up of responsive web design. This is what they call RESS or R-E-S-S, -S, which is responsive design with server-side uh, and server-side components. So you can send the user down the most basic version of the application and then if you find out they have the bandwidth or the screen size to support additional functionality, you can go back to the server using something like Ajax. Make an Ajax call, bring down more UI, or give the user the ability to uh, press a button and do an Ajax call to bring up more, you know, say additional charts that they may want to see or additional rows and columns in a grid. Uh, let the user pull back things that they, they actually want to see. Uh, rather than just shove it all down the pipe and hide it and let the user display it uh, and take up all that bandwidth and memory when it's not needed. Gotcha. Now, um, I know there is a um, device detection framework that we make at Telerik and that you're fond of. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the ASP.NET AJAX uh, control suite for um, web forms that Telerik makes has a device detection framework um, where we take care of all of uh, the device database information. So uh, when when the user agent uh, comes to the server, we can detect what device that is and you can uh, set up different code paths to give back uh, templates that are appropriate to those devices. Um, there's also client-side detection that you can do if you're not using web forms um, that is part of the foundation framework. Gotcha. So in terms of maybe um, designing your web applications for mobile, what are some things you, uh, you try to be maybe careful of? Like, are there things you consider in terms of how many JavaScript uh, libraries and things you bring in? Are there other considerations? Like, I'm trying to see if there are specific things you need to be careful of, especially as you kind of design your hybrid web uh, applications. So in any mobile development situation, you're going to want to use the least amount of resources you need to send across the wire. Uh, most mobile devices are accessing your application or even the APIs uh, to, to the cloud or wherever they're at um, through a limited bandwidth connection. So you want to remember that those users are on limited bandwidth and you need to send them the least amount of stuff they need to get started, get functional with the application. Um, another thing you need to do with the web is the amount of JavaScript resources and CSS resources uh, that are in your head of your document, you should try to keep those as low as possible, but HTTP2 will help resolve that issue because they allow parallel access. Yeah, to I heard about that. So lots of like parallel, um, you're not limiting the number of connections that you have simultaneously to the server. No, I mean, not that you want to download like 50 images to load up your web page, but if you do, there's a little bit of help. Yeah, that's, it's going to be much more performant on HTTP2. Okay. Um, so we are about maybe uh, two, three minutes down. How about any closing thoughts? And we'll circle around. Anything you want to close with? Yeah, I think I keep hitting the same point. Um, there's no one specific tool to do the job um, to, to create a mobile uh, application or a mobile experience for your users there may be multiple avenues you may need a mobile responsive application website uh, with additional companion applications for watch and phone and things to complete the experience and then there's the reverse side of the coin too where uh, things like um, uh, Instagram there, there is no desktop experience you only have a mobile experience so maybe maybe that's all you need so it's about you know picking the right tools for the job. You may need more than one uh, point of access for users. Okay, awesome. How about we um, go with David to maybe uh, close things out? So, um, David, the uh, the world is interesting, especially when it comes to IoT. 
And I know Microsoft uh, is heavy in this space. Anything new and happening that you want to maybe highlight? Um, I have a thought on IoT. I think IoT is um, Internet of Things, and this highlights the fact that that mobile development is uh, is here to stay, but the definition of mobile development is going to change. So just like 10 years ago, we thought, well, we ought to build for PCs, and that's going to be good enough for everybody. And now there's a lot more smartphones out there than there are PCs. Actually, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's a lot more smartphones than there were a few years ago. And that number is growing. And there's a danger that we start thinking we're mobile developers, and that's the same thing as being a smartphone developer. And so what you need to think about is that it really isn't the phones that are mobile. It's the people that are mobile. You really need to des design your applications for the people and what device they're using. A lot of them haven't even invented you yet. It might be the phone, it might be a band, it might be a watch, it might be a, a device that's um, that they're the, the chip that they embedded in my skull. I don't know. Uh, it may be uh, some medical device that they're wearing. It's um, that's that changes all the time. That's what you really need to keep in mind. And I think that's what IoT is really about. It's all about devices that can help people encoding to those and coding to the users. All right, thanks, uh, David. How about we uh, end with Michael? So, uh, yeah, make sure you don't trip on that wire. Uh, how about um, ending thoughts from you? I know it's an exciting space to be. Um, I mean, I guess, where do you draw the lines of wanting to go full out native if you're maybe writing a game or something? And when do you really like going cross-platform? Yeah, so I am a big believer, even though that I have been investing in native um, for Telerik and even for my own stuff as kind of an indie developer, I'm a big believer that you got to do what's best for your team. Um, I work with a lot of different customers and a lot of customers absolutely don't need native. There's no reason that they should do that. I've worked with some restaurants that all the, the only thing that they needed was, you know, it's like our mom and pop restaurant. We need some way to find our you know, people to find our location. They need some way to see our menu and they're able to actually build and put something like that together using Cordova and maybe a plugin or two like social sharing where they can share where they're at and do that for a fraction of the cost compared to actually purchasing an iOS developer for, you know, eight hours or 16 hours and a, a Java developer and then somebody that's doing C sharp. So do what's best for your team. And I say look internal first. Um, I, I previously worked at a children's hospital uh, before I joined Telerik almost four years ago. And, and when I worked there, we looked internal first to see what skill set we had. And we had a web skill set. And so that's the reason that we started with mobile web was because our application or our first app that we were working on didn't require any of the other functionality. Now, if your company is going to be looking to build like the next lightning fast, you know, you know, racing game or whatever, then you're gonna you're gonna need the speed of of, of some of the stuff that Metal provides in iOS and uh, some of the other game engines that's that's currently available, like Unity for Windows Phone and Android, and etc. All right, so uh, I guess we have kind of come a complete circle uh, to the answer that it really does depend. The fact that there are so many choices uh, and so many technologies kind of highlights the case that it does depend, like Michael said, depends on the uh, skills of your team, depends on what maintainability and what audience you're trying to reach uh, with your mobile applications. So I think the, that's it from us. Hopefully this was uh, somewhat helpful and uh, you guys enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of the post right, Thank you.